as they led him away. They seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, and they laid the cross upon him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A great number of the people followed him, and among them were women who were beating their breasts and wailing for him. But Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are surely coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that ever bore and the breasts that ever nursed. Then they will fall, and they begin to say to the mountains, Fall upon us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do this when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing, and the people stood by watching. But the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until, there in the after until three in the afternoon, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, when he breathed his last, when the centurion saw what he had taken place, he praised God and said, Certainly this man was innocent. And when all the crowds who had gathered there for the spectacle saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breasts. But all his acquaintances, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph, who though a member of the council, had not agreed to their plan and action. He came from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down, he wrapped it in a linen cloth, and he laid it in a rock-hewn tomb where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was coming. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed, and they saw the tomb, and his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments, and on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. You know, one of the things that we often do with Good Friday is we, we focus on the agony. We focus on the extent of the suffering. We focus on the brutality of the cross, the blood, the, the suffocating, gasping for air. And for many of us, we've almost been handed this package that until we truly apprehend how terrible Jesus' suffering was, 
then we can't really apprehend the story itself. But if you read the actual New Testament accounts, one of which we just read from Luke, the gospel writers are so reticent to do that. They don't linger on the gory details. And people have gone to great lengths to describe the agony of the crucifixion, and surely Jesus suffered greatly, the experience of the sufferer. But the gospel writers are much more reserved in their language They'll use simple, though powerful imagery. They whipped him, they spat upon him, they took him and they crucified him. And I find when we focus on the agony of the cross, we either focus on ourselves or we simply focus on the suffering itself. And that's part of it. But the cross is about so much more. The cross is about revelation When we look at the cross, we see God in his fullness, in all of the mystery, in all of the wisdom of God. When we see Jesus giving of his life in all of its brutality, we see God. John writes in chapter 19, verses 31 through 37, he says, Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath, because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. So they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look upon the one they have pierced. The cross will not let us stand by idly as passive observers. We must hear our shouts in the voices of those taunting and cursing Jesus. We must see our hands nailing his hands to the cross. We must see our absence And those friends that left Jesus in his hour of need, the cross demands that we stare down the sum total of our idolatry, of our futile attempts to establish our own righteousness. We have sinned. We are sinners. They will look upon the one they have pierced. The deed of piercing is done, but when we turn our attention to the one who is pierced, We find something quite different than the sum total of all of our sins. Because Ecclesia, the cross is not just a mirror. The cross is not just meant to show us how terrible we were and thus how gracious God is. The cross is doing so much more. The cross is like a veil being torn in two in the temple. It is the revelation of the glory of God. It is the victory of Jesus over the powers of sin and death. And in Jesus' victory, we see this compelling paradox, this mystery. Jesus has suffered everything that we will ever suffer in this life. Jesus has gone through it all. And for many throughout the ages, many oppressed peoples, many of us have taken refuge in Jesus' sufferings. And the Bible describes God like a, like a mother hen wanting to shelter us under his wings. And friends, if you are suffering tonight, the cross is your refuge. You can hide in its shadow and find that God is holding you there because he has been there. 
But just as the cross is not just about suffering, just as the cross is not just about our brokenness, there's something happening through the suffering. There's something happening not in spite of it. Jesus doesn't just cancel out the cross on Easter. He doesn't just say, oh, April Fool's, something else is going on. Jesus does something so powerful through the very depths of our suffering. John describes Jesus as being pierced with a spear. Blood and water flowing from his side. He quotes the prophet Zechariah from chapter 12 of Zechariah's prophecy and describing what is happening to Jesus. Zechariah 12 verse 10 says, And I will pour out a spirit of compassion and supplication on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that when they look upon the one whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And on the cross, God is pouring out his compassion. He is revealing himself so that we would see our brokenness, but he's also doing something far deeper. The next verse in Zechariah's prophecy, Zechariah 13 verse 1 says, On that day, on that day when they look upon the one whom they have pierced, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. When we look upon the one we have pierced, when we fix our eyes on the cross, we see our brokenness. But we also see this extravagant love of God. Not, that not in spite of our brokenness and sin, but rather through it, is loosing a fountain of cleansing, of forgiveness, of victory, of overcoming John describes a fountain of blood and water. Now, well-meaning medical uh, historians and scientists have tried to discern what, if, what could have been going on physiologically at the close of Jesus' life for blood and water to flow from his side. But I don't think that's the point that John is trying to make here. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night in John chapter 3 and was perplexed by Jesus' insistence that he must be born again. Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of spirit. Jesus says to the crowds in John chapter 7, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me, and let the one who believes in me drink. As the scripture has said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. Born again. Living water, the water unleashed by the soldier's unwitting spear is the very river of life that flows from Eden, that flows for the healing of the nations. They are the floodwaters that covered the earth in the days of Noah, except from this judgment, from this opening of the heavens, the earth is being filled with the knowledge of God like waters cover the sea. The waters that flow from Jesus' side are the waters that we enter into at baptism identifying our lives with his and the blood. The blood of Jesus' sacrifice. By his blood, he is casting all of our shame aside, nailing it to the cross, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. He's making a show of the powers and principalities. The writer of Hebrews says of this, he says, Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all of their lives have been held in slavery by the fear of death. As Jesus' side is pierced, he is destroying death by death. 
Him who knew no sin, becoming sin, a sin offering for us. The light of the world plunged into darkness. We look upon the one that we have pierced this Good Friday, not to see the warped calculus of our own depravity, but to see the extravagant love of Father, Spirit, and Son. The fountain that opened up from the side of the Savior and the heart of the Father through the grace of the Spirit. Yes, we must see ourselves there. But we must look upon the one we have pierced. We don't look at our own hands and say, what have we done? We look upon the one who hangs upon that cross and we see God's extravagant heart for each one of us. That through suffering, Jesus has won a victory that is available to us for all of time. Karl Barth, urging a group of inmates in Switzerland to look at the Savior. He said, look at our Savior. Look at our salvation. Look at Jesus Christ on the cross. Do you know for whose sake he is hanging there? It is for our sake. Because of our sin, sharing our captivity, burdened with our suffering, he nails our life to the cross. This is how God had to deal with us. From this darkness he has saved us. He who is not shattered after hearing this news may not yet have grasped the word of God. By grace you have been saved. And Ecclesia, as we're here tonight to remember, to reflect, to immerse ourselves in the story, we look upon the one, the one who was pierced, The one who by his wounds we are healed. By his suffering we are made whole. We take refuge in the fellowship of his suffering. We see our lives there held within the nail-scarred hands. The hands outstretched of the Savior embracing the whole world. We see in all of God's wisdom and all of his extravagance the love of Father, Spirit, and Son. So tonight... Friends, if you're heavy laden, if you're burdened, Jesus has carried those burdens. If you're wrestling with shame, Jesus has brought that into the light. He has nailed it to the cross. If you're looking at the world and seeing nothing but hopelessness and a bleak future, Jesus has paid for a future by his wounds. So tonight, let us look upon the one that we have pierced. Not as a way of simply holding up a mirror to our own brokenness, but seeing the heart of God. The heart of God for each one of us. As Jesus gives of his body and his blood, he invites us to his table. The psalmist says, you will prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And tonight, as we find ourselves in the story, I simply want to invite you to the table as a foretaste of the kingdom that Jesus is ushering in here on the cross as we are here tonight. I'm going to invite Alfredo and Laura to make their way back up. I'm going to invite our communion service to come. And as they come, I just want to invite you to use your imaginations to hold in your mind the pierced one. To look upon Jesus to see the extravagant love of the Father. When we contemplate the cross, when we turn our attention towards God and what he has done, mysteriously, God meets us there. God speaks his comforting word to us. God speaks his words of correction. He speaks his words of conviction. God is meeting us here tonight as we gather around the cross of Jesus. 
the turning point of all of history as the king is coming in his kingdom. And he comes not by shedding the blood of his enemies, but by giving of his own very life. Forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. To look upon the cross is to look upon the truth of God, to look upon the love of God. And we do that here together tonight. But Jesus' salvation is not just some ethereal promise that is held off in the future. It is bread. It is wine. It is God meeting us in the very hard and fast realities of this life and saying, by my blood, I have overcome. And as you bear witness to my kingdom and the way that it comes, you too are invited to be a part of God's overcoming kingdom and family. And so we share this meal because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to invite you to come. I just invite you to hold that image in your mind of Jesus there, to look upon the one who is pierced, to see the fountain that flows from his side, that is a fountain that leads to life, the blood of a new kingdom, a new family. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, God, we arrive at your cross. God, we fix our eyes there. Lord, we come to the end of words. So God, over the next few moments, Lord, I, I just pray expectantly over these people, God, that you would speak a fresh word. God, a word of forgiveness for those who are heavy laden, God, a word of assurance for those who are carrying deep sorrow. God, a word of hope for those who need it, God. The amazing thing about your cross is that though from the vantage point of all who looked on, it seemed as if the world was coming to an end, but really the world is beginning again. Uh, because of your abundant mercy, God, because of your incredible love. So God, may we see the love of the Father as we look upon the one who was pierced for us. As we taste the body and the blood, Lord Jesus, or those, although those metaphors can be so uncomfortable to us, God, may we see that we are tasting your kingdom, that you have paid for the forgiveness of sins. God, you have liberated us from slavery, Lord. We no longer are subject to sin and death because of who you are and what you've done. We are your children, God. How great is the love that you have lavished upon us. Help us to hold the image of the cross in your mind as we come to the table. It's in your name we pray.